Today we continue our study of the book of Genesis, and I want to encourage each of you to turn in your copy of God's Word to Genesis chapter 4. Now, real quick, I want to point out that in terms of a unit, in terms of a unit of thought, all of chapter 4 is one unit of thought. It begins with Eve giving birth to Cain, and it concludes with Eve giving birth to Seth. So it's, it's a unit, but it is traditional to divide it between the story of Cain and Abel and then the story of Cain's progeny, his descendants and the line that flows from him. So that's the route we're going to take, but you got to see that this is all part of one narrative. In fact, it's part of a larger narrative of four through six where we see the spread of sin. That the sin of Adam and Eve was not contained to their existence in the garden, but rather as they went, so goes sin. And so sin is inexorably, inexorably tied to humanity. And wherever people are gathered, their sin is present. And so this is the matrix in which we find ourselves. This is our reality. Sin is present everywhere. And so, let us turn and see what God has for us in these first 16 verses of chapter 4. Now Adam knew Eve, his wife, and she conceived and bore Cain, saying, I have gotten a man with the help of the Lord. And again, she bore his brother Abel. Now Abel was a keeper of sheep, and Cain a worker of the ground. In the course of time, Cain brought to the Lord an offering of the fruit of the ground, and Abel also brought of the firstborn of his flock and of their fat portions. And the Lord had regard for Abel and his offering. But for Cain and his offering, he had no regard. So Cain was very angry, and his face fell. The Lord said to Cain, Why are you angry, and why has your face fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is contrary to you, but you must rule over it. Cain spoke to Abel, his brother, and when they were in the field, Cain rose up against his brother Abel and killed him. Then the Lord said to Cain, where is Abel, your brother? He said, I do not know. Am I my brother's keeper? And the Lord said, what have you done? The voice of your brother's blood is crying to me from the ground. And now you are cursed from the ground, which has opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. When you work the ground, it shall no longer yield to you its strength. You shall be a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth. Cain said to the Lord, my punishment is greater than I can bear. Behold, you have driven me today from the ground, and from your face I shall be hidden. I shall be a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth, and whoever finds me will kill me. Then the Lord said to him, Not so. If anyone kills Cain, vengeance shall be taken on him sevenfold. 
And the Lord put a mark on Cain, lest any who found him should attack him. Then Cain went away from the presence of the Lord and settled in the land of Nod, east of Eden. Brothers and sisters, this is the word of the living God. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of God stands forever. Let's pray. Almighty God, we thank you so much for your word. Lord, we confess that we come to you with hearts that are heavy laden, distracted. We confess that even in the best of our moments, that at most we can say we believe, help our unbelief. Lord, help us to believe. Help us to live our lives in full appreciation of your glorious presence. Help us to delight in that presence. Help us to set aside everything that entangles and ensnares and pursue the kingdom. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, brothers and sisters, as I was saying a few moments ago, we have left Eden. Adam and Eve, at the conclusion of chapter 3, they are expelled from the garden. And they are consigned to an existence of eking out a life until they die and return to the dust from whence they came. This is the story of the fall. And so we have lived our lives post-Eden ever since. Humanity knows nothing but a post-fall existence. But the big question remains, why is that so? Why didn't Adam and Eve's sin end there? And of course, it's because they are the fount from which all humanity springs. And as the head of the human race, Their contamination, their pollution is passed on in their progeny. And so what we see in the next few chapters, chapters 4, chapters 5, and chapter 6, is that tale, the tale of the spread of sin. And, and, And the point of Moses as he provides these three chapters of instruction and historical background is he wants to drive home the point. That mankind is broken. Mankind is in rebellion. Mankind is lost in the dark. And even the best of human attainments have come with the intermingled corruption of human sin. And the only hope, therefore, is a Messiah. The only hope is for a champion who will save us. And so bear in mind as we read this, as we work through these chapters, that Moses is delivering this book to the newly founded people of God. They've received their constitution, so to speak, at Sinai. They are wandering in the desert and these books, the books of the law, the books of Moses are being written to inform and shape the people's understanding. 
Because their status in the world is that they are a royal priesthood, a holy nation. Indeed, that same commission given to Israel in Exodus is passed on and reiterated to the church. Not that Israel has been replaced, but rather Israel has been expanded and clarified. And so all who call on the name of Jesus are Israel. And we are a city on a hill. And so this is our story. This is the world in which we live. And and as we go through life, we, we have to understand the problems around us so we know how to minister in those problems. But this passage also underscores the continual conflict that is first depicted just a few verses prior in Genesis 3.15, where God tells the serpent that he will put enmity between he and her and her seed and his seed. And so we see this here. We see it from the very get-go that there was hardly a, a gap of, there's hardly a pause of breath. As you read the narrative, it flows from they're banished and next thing you know, Cain's killing Abel with hardly a, a pause. That conflict is real, it's persistent, it's present. Now, I could go on and on about that at the large-scale, cultural, worldwide level. And that's true. But this passage is written to the people of God, for the people of God. And there's one thing that I think really stands out here. And that is, you see a, you see a picture of the thing we're warned against repeatedly in the New Testament. The New Testament persistently warns us against unbelief. It tells us to check ourselves, to watch ourselves, to examine ourselves, lest any of us should have a hard heart deceived by the wickedness of sin. The Bible teaches that sin is not just a theoretical concept, it's an enslaving force. Romans 5 teaches this. Romans 7 teaches this. Peter teaches this. That, that sin ensnares practically. And it tricks us and it, and it takes us in bondage and it makes our hearts grow cold. And so repeatedly the New Testament tells us, watch out for this. Don't be like the people of Israel who had unbelieving hearts and therefore perished. Make sure your hearts are always pliable and soft and feeling. And so what this passage does, more than anything else, it is a portrait, a case study, if you will, in unbelief. So as we read this passage, we see Cain and Abel. They're the two people for whom this passage is named. This, the, it's the title of my sermon. I took the easy road and just did Cain and Abel because they're the two human actors. But, but really, this passage is about Cain. Abel doesn't speak. Abel is just continually referred to as your brother, your brother. The person being addressed always is Cain. 
This passage is about him. This passage is developed in two sections, verses 3 to 7 and 9 to 16, the two narratives, the two dialogues between God and Cain, and the report of the murder in verse 8 is the sinner. There's a number of motifs that are present in this passage which get fleshed out in later scripture. Passages later on in scripture will take motifs that are here and you find positive injunction or something. So for example, sacrifices to God are to be from a heart of faith. That's a motif from here. The Israelites did have responsibility for one another. It's like half the Torah is a repudiation of, of Cain's assertion that he's not his brother's keeper. We have the idea that bloodshed pollutes the land and requires purification. That, that's here, even though they're not in Israel and they're not under a, a typological covenant, bloodshed pollutes the land and requires purification. God makes provision against blood revenge which he does later in the law. But the idea of punishment, of consequences, this becomes, this becomes part of the basic framework for any civilization. I hope you realize that. That, 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 that punishment for offenders is necessary in any society. If you don't have that in any society, then you are going to have a lawless society. Okay, life without God and his blessing is typified here and later as banishment. Being driven away from God's presence is the typological manifestation of being without God. And of course, the elder gets rejected for the younger. That's something we see all throughout the Old Testament. But those are just motifs that are present here in support of the larger concept of Cain as a case study of unbelief. And as believers in Christ, repeatedly and consistently exhorted by Scripture to guard yourself from unbelief, I want to now spend the rest of this sermon on five observations from this passage each of these hopefully brief, that my intent and desire is for you to examine yourself, to guard yourself against unbelief. And if you see in yourself any of these, then repent. Cry out to God for grace and mercy. Turn to him while the day of repentance is here. Do not walk, as Jude tells us, in the way of Cain. Don't walk in that way because it is the way of death. All right? So, five signs of of unbelief. First, unbelief manifests itself in worship. And we see that right off the bat, don't we? Cain and Abel are at worship. Verse 
Three, they come. And one of the, one of the mistakes we oftentimes make is we think that unbelievers don't worship. That's not true. Everyone worships. One of the mistakes we make is that unbelievers won't worship the true God. They will worship the true God. But you know what an unbeliever won't do? And, and, and I don't, let me back up. Not unbeliever, an unbelieving heart. What a heart that is hard against God. We, we have no idea what Cain was like before this, and it's kind of irrelevant. But what we see is at worship, he comes to the Lord with an offering that is by itself totally fine. There's nothing wrong with him being a worker of the ground. There's nothing wrong with him being a farmer. There's, there's nothing wrong with him offering some of his harvest. In fact, grain offerings are prescribed in the law. But notice, notice what it says here. In the course of time, Cain brought to the Lord an offering of the fruit of the ground. And by contrast, Abel, his brother, by contrast, Abel also brought of the firstborn of his flock and of their fat portions. And so the contrast is not in merely the thing presented. God gets to the heart and that's what God is after. And so what we see on display here is Abel loved God. And as we learn in Hebrews 11, he by faith presents an offering that is acceptable. And so by faith, he offers God his best. God didn't have to tell him, give me of your firstborn, give me of the, the, their fat portions, the, the best parts. Abel just did it because he loved the Lord. No one had to compel him. He just did it. And by contrast, Cain just simply gives something. He's the guy who shows up to worship to do the thing that he needs to do to check the block. And religious history is full of that, isn't it? And we are not to judge one another. You cannot judge what someone is doing sitting there. This is, this is only for you to judge yourself. Am I going through the motions? Am, am I like a Pharisee? who makes a big display, but inside I'm, I'm, I'm cold as ice towards God and his ways. So, unbelief manifests itself in worship, not necessarily in the externals, but in the heart, because that's the difference here. It's by faith that Abel's sacrifice was offered and therefore accepted. Do you come to the Lord with a heart of faith or are you just going through the motions? That's the first thing. Second, unbelief becomes anger over God's acceptance of those who are more faithful. 
We see this all the time, do we not? Where a goody two-shoes is disliked simply for being a goody two-shoes. Where people are uncomfortable around people who are more righteous than they. We automatically will smack them with, oh, they think they're better than us. They, we label them, even when it's not necessarily true, just because they're better than we are. They're more righteous than we. And that's precisely what John says of Cain in 1 John chapter 3. Why did Cain kill Abel? It says, because Cain was wicked. His deeds were wicked and Abel's were righteous. That's it. We oftentimes get clouded by the fact that every offender has a story. Every offender has an excuse. At the bottom line of it, Cain killed Abel because he was wicked. And he couldn't stand someone who was more righteous than he. Now, obviously, most of us are not going to go murder people who are better than we are morally or spiritually. But you know what we do? We, we, we follow the line of what Jesus condemns. Where we hate someone in our heart. And we envy them. When we see someone prospering under God's providence and, and, and we think I'm putting in just as much as that person or I, I've put in more than that person and, and this person is being blessed and, we're, and I'm struggling, God. And we take that as sign of God's favor and we get angry. I've said it many times. It, in seminary, it was really tough seeing all... It's like most of our peers had rich relatives that were helping them out. And we didn't have anybody. We were poor, getting by by the skin of our teeth. And it was so frustrating to see friends who had, were just, just, it was so angry. It was tempting to be angry. And frankly, there were times we were. But that's, that's a heart of unbelief. If we believe that God is there and he is good and he is, and, and he is gracious and he is a rewarder of those who do good, then let God be God and let us turn to him and express our repentance at being discontent and upset over not getting what we think we deserve. Isn't that pride? Isn't that the thing that is the manifestation of the fall in the first place? So unbelief becomes anger when we see God blessing others. Third, and we see this all the time. We see it in ourselves in others, but it's our job to look at ourselves, not others. Unbelief manifests itself in disregard for warnings about sin. How many times do you hear somebody say, 
Oh, be careful. Don't do that. This, is, this, this, this will lead to a life of, of ruin. Don't do it. This is unwise. This is, don't do this. This is wrong. And it's disregarded. We get frustrated when we see our kids, for example. When, they, when they're young, you can control them. As they get older, all you can do is stand by and pull out your hair. But we see it all the time when we warn someone about the, the life choices they're making, the sin that they are either in or the sin they're thinking of committing. And it's just like they won't heed. That's, that's unbelief. We see in verse 7, one of the most mm, just heart-wrenching, it should grab your heart. If you do well, will you not be accepted? Yeah. Yes. But sin, sin, its desire is for you. And I, I wish they wouldn't have translated it the way they did here in the ESV. Its desire is contrary to you. That, 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 that makes it sound like sin is just ornery or something. No, it literally says its desire is for you. Do you understand how that's a much more sinister thing? It wants you. Sin wants you bad. We aren't talking total depravity. There's a sense in which every single human being ever since the fall has been just totally depraved and they're dead and contaminated in all their parts. That's not what we're talking about. We're talking about practical mastery. It's the sin that we're warned in the New Testament will ensnare and enslave. It will bind us up and before long you're so far gone that you can't even think back to what it was like before. And there are some of you who know what I'm talking about. A hugely addictive thing is pornography. It's a plague. But yet it strikes at a chord that makes it so hard once, once ensnared to break free. It's so hard. It's harder than quitting cigarettes. It gets its tentacles around and it's worse than an octopus trying to pull it off. But unbelief, it will tell you that you're the exception. Unbelief will say, oh, I don't need to heed all the warnings about sin. I don't need to worry about all that. I'm, I'm the exception. Sin has promised me a good time. And they can make every excuse why they, why they deserve this. Sin ignores warnings against Unbelief disregards warnings against sin. Its desire is for you, but you must master it. Control it. Beat it into submission. But he didn't. And because he didn't, the first righteous man was killed. Indeed, we are told right here in this passage that the voice of Abel's blood cried out from the ground. We're told in Hebrews 
Abel still speaks. Jesus tells the religious leaders, on you, religious leaders, will come the blood of every righteous person ever slain all the way back to Abel. A righteous, innocent man was murdered by his brother because of unbelief. But then once the act is done, fourth, unbelief repudiates responsibility for sin. We see that in verse nine. The Lord confronts him. Where's your brother? It's the same kind of rhetorical question that God asked Adam and Eve. The Lord knows the answer. But just like in the case in the garden, God's desire and intent is to elicit confession, repentance. Instead, what is he met with? And this is even more hardcore denial than Adam and Eve. Adam and Eve at least acknowledged they sinned, but they just blame shifted. Cain, now his, his response is what we're more familiar with. Straight up denied. And then acted offended at the inquiry. I don't know where my brother is, and, and how dare you for asking? Am I his keeper? He's not my problem. He utterly repudiates any responsibility. And that is a characteristic of unbelief. That when the, the stuff happens to us, when God who has repeatedly war warned, you will reap what you sow. That is not just some ominous warning about the final judgment day. In this life, you will reap what you sow. It's how God has wired creation. And so if you spend all your money drinking and, and gambling and, and, and doing everything, don't be surprised when your electricity gets cut off. It's a cause and effect nature of how life works. But what happens is we, we, we treat our family like, like garbage and then they don't want to have anything to do with us. Why did it happen? And we, like Cain, absolve ourselves of any responsibility. It's not my fault. I don't know what's going on. The inquiry itself is offensive. A sensitive heart, though, a heart that has been made alive and is tender. While, while not accepting responsibility for other people's actions, nonetheless is open to, to being held accountable for our own mistakes on our own sins. When, when your sins are pointed out, we, we hate it. But is there a part of you that at least, maybe in the initial moment all you do is kick back, and many of us do, but, but maybe you go away and then you think about it in your own private, oh, okay, there was some truth to what they said. Does that happen? If so, rejoice. Rejoice that your heart is sensitive. Be worried if your heart is hard and you never ever feel a prick of conscience. If you are always right 
and you, have ne- and you never have reason to feel bad about the things you've done, that is a warning. Okay? Unbelief repudiates any responsibility for sin. And then finally, unbelief protests the punishment for sin. This is what we see at the end, the last four verses. I read this, I'll admit, when I read his, my punishment is more than I can bear, I just want to, oh, poor baby. Ultimately, we don't know why God let him live. We could say it's a picture of how God deals graciously with unbelievers and how God deals tolerably patiently with unbelievers for the sake of the elect that will come from their progeny. But God orders the death penalty just a few chapters later, so we don't know exactly why Cain is kept alive at this point. No one does. There's lots of speculation. But what we do know is that God curses him personally. If you compare what happens with Adam and Eve, they aren't cursed personally. Cain here is cursed personally. And and, and so what it would look like is uh, sometimes I wonder if, if I'm cursed personally when it comes to the ground because whatever I try to grow doesn't work. That's not entirely true. This year it is working. But prior to this year, it was very frustrating. You try to grow, and it's like it doesn't matter. It's growing for them. It's growing for them, but it's not growing for me. So it's impossible when your whole life depends on the food you're growing. It's impossible to stay in one place if it's not going to grow for you. God, when he says you are consigned to wandering, it's because now the only food he can eat is the food that's grown when he gets to the area. But once he's depleted that, nothing more will grow for him there. And he has to move on. And so he is consigned to a life of nonstop wandering. It sounds horrible, doesn't it? But he thinks it's unfair. Yeah, I killed my brother in cold blood. But that's not... It's unfair what's happening to me. It's unfair. And we see... In the New Testament, we're told that those in hell weep and gnash their teeth. And I tell you, for a long time, people have wondered, how can a crime that's of finite duration warrant an infinitely great punishment? It's caused people like even the great John Stott to postulate that eventually your sin has been paid for by your suffering and you just kind of burn out. It's called annihilationism. But I think the Bible, and it's also been postulated that, well, because God is infinitely great, the sin is infinite. I don't, maybe, but I think that the words of the Bible tell us why they go on burning forever. It says there's weeping and gnashing of teeth, gnashing of teeth, gnashing of teeth, gnashing of teeth. That's in the Bible a lot. And you know when gnashing of teeth occurs? It doesn't occur when someone is sad. Oh, I made a dumb decision. 
That's not when gnashing of teeth occurs. Gnashing of teeth, of course, only occurs at one time. And you know what it is. What is it? When they're furious. In hell, there's weeping and gnashing of teeth. That's not regret. That's fury. You want to know why they burn forever? Because they are forever cursing the God who sent them there. They are forever cursing the God whose justice held them accountable for their wickedness. They never stop sinning. You see, wicked unbelief tells us that whatever comes our way in terms of judgment, in terms of punishment, in terms of discipline is unfair. I remember this clear as a bell from when I was a kid. It didn't matter how bad my behavior had been. My spanking was undeserved. Those sentences I had to write were undeserved. Or, 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 or there was too many of them. Or, or I, my time out was too long. I remember thinking that I'm not so old that I forget. And I know my children think the same. And I'm guessing you and your kids think the same. That whatever the punishment is, it's too severe. That's unbelief. And we're told in the New Testament to not kick against, to not chafe against the discipline of God. That means he disciplines us. But when it happens, do you feel angry like you're being mistreated? Or do you accept it as the loving kindness of a father who wants your best? So in this passage, we see a number of signs, of telltale signs of unbelief. And it's my hope and my prayer, brothers and sisters, that, that as you look at these verses, that you would be mindful of the warnings we have received to not walk in the way of Cain, to not be like Cain, to learn from that, to watch ourselves, to guard ourselves, to judge ourselves, that we might in our battle of sanctification, of mortifying, put, putting to death the deeds of the flesh, that we might be better equipped to do so. And that's what this passage is all about. Let's pray.